listeners, and welcome to Trash and Treasures, where we watch the movies other people throw away. My name is Vry, I'm Mayhem, and with me as always is Dorothy, who is she, her. Hi! Poor Dorothy is feeling slightly under the weather today. I'm alright, I've just got a bit of a uh, sore throat, which has me sounding very uh, Kathleen Turner in here. It's working for you. (laughs) Despite our weekly scheduling issues, which is my fault and I apologize, we are nonetheless continuing on with our annual tradition of Pride Month, where we swap from bi-weekly episodes to weekly for the month of June, and we cover a semi-chronological look through an element of queer filmmaking. And it is both the most challenging thing we do all year and maybe my favorite. So this year we are doing a bit of a sort of camp and outsider stuff, just looking at the underpinnings of that whole phenomenon. We dipped our toe into what is camp even and we can't stop. (laughs) And these are gay movies, generally speaking. What? I hear you say? We are picking an unusually well-known film for our uh, podcast to start off with, but it seemed like the best inroad to kind of lay down some foundational stuff. Because Majin in uniform is hard to get a hold of. So we have elected to go with James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein, which is a very good film and a very trim, like, 75 80 minutes it is a b-side in the classical sense and that it is a shorter film that was shown on a double billing yeah that's originally what b films meant it was not an overt statement of the film's quality but rather a marketing designation but then you tended to get less funding for those productions vicious circle and all of that James Whale was also the director of the original Frankenstein, which this is a interesting comparison, primarily because Frankenstein is a pre-code film. It was made in 1931, and Bride of Frankenstein is a code film. Made in 1935, or well, released in 1935. My throat's sore. You mind talking about the code this I time? I do not. Yes, I believe we have touched... It, Your it is. You're Catholic. You can talk about the Legion of Decency. They're not actually Catholic anymore. You're right. I, uh, (laughs) I gotta, yeah, sure. I I should take responsibility for that. (laughs) So we've touched on the code in past episodes. It's sort of inevitable if you're talking about any sort of pre-1960, well, 1932 to 1960-ish queer film. It was a series of censorship regulations called the Hayes Code. Or the Motion Picture Production Code, but Hayes was like the slang term for it because there was a dude named Hayes. And basically it was meant to be sort of like the Comics Authority Code later on, if you are familiar with that. It's a series of moral guidelines meant to make film palatable and righteous for the general viewing public. Wholesome, one might even say. It went everything from very broad edicts, like the villains must be punished and the heroes must do well and there must be a moral lesson that the viewer can take from the film, to really weirdly specific things like our personal favorite, if two people are on a bed, one person's foot better be on the floor. Otherwise, they fucking 
Mm-hmm. So people operating during the time when the code was in effect started to develop certain shorthand for audiences to read into to understand what's going on. Like, for example, when people share a cigarette, that's an act of intimacy that was allowed on screen. Because kisses were explicitly limited to no more than three seconds of lip touching. So you got a lot of close talking. And, and indirect kisses. Oh my goodness. Trains going into tunnels. Which could get hilariously overt, just embarrassingly so. And so this is one of the things that we can refer to as coding in films. However, queer coding is different from that. There is a distinctness between queer coding, which has always existed in various permutations, and a very specific form of coding of queer characters under the Hayes Code. So there are d these distinctions, and I... I've noticed some people talking about them in a way that blurs those distinctions where they assume all queer coding is in response to this historical moment of the Hayes Code and assume that queer coding didn't exist except for under those pressures and stuff, which is not true. But the Hayes Code is important in cinema history and in the history of queer art because it is this very specific span of time that affected a lot of cultural understandings and and norms about portrayal. And it wasn't just for gay stuff, to be clear. No, there are lots of forms of coding for marginalized identities, disability, mental illness, race, all of that stuff. Yeah, and the Hayes Code didn't just work on gay and queer characters. It, just all sorts of things that were thought to be immoral mm -hmm. in culture. It is true that there is a, a diluting effect starting from the Hayes Code and moving into modern film, specifically in the language of visual filmmaking, where you go from people like James Whale, an out gay filmmaker, although we'll get to that. We will. Where they were infusing these characters with these queer sensibilities, whether it's just because those are the people they knew in their life or because they are trying to sneak this past the censors to people see those films and internalize the behaviors, but not necessarily the empowering or I see this element of it. And because queer characters, even when coded, have to come to bad ends. Disney. Disney. Yes, you're right. The end result of this is Disney. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> really shortcutting that for me. <laughs> and th this is how we end up with Disney's notorious history of queer-coded villains. Now, James Whale specifically was an out gay filmmaker, which makes him somewhat unique because the code also coincided with the studio era, where there was a lot of very careful formation of a star's identity and your studio would put you under a moral contract clause, which often meant, if needs be, setting you up with a proper heterosexual partner to be seen with. Beards. But, yes. Official beards. Now, Well was a director, and so less of a public personality than a movie star might be. The early star system in general was also just bizarre, because most of these people were wild as fuck. If you are interested in more on the Hayes Code and the studio system, and indeed on Boris Karloff, 
I would highly recommend checking out You Must Remember This. It is an extremely well-researched history podcast that does sort of like our Pride segments, uh, these mini-series on particular subjects, and you will get a lot of information there. It's very helpful just for that sort of historical background. Um, it's also extremely well-researched and does these long deep dives that we just simply aren't equipped to do. So Yeah, she's got a researcher and access to a lot of physical book books. Or did. She's back now. I just mean because of 2020. Oh, you're Nobody right. Nobody had access to physical books. You're right. Oh, no. So James Whale is something of an oddity in terms of the visibility of his queerness. But at the same time, there has been some back and forth over the relationship between his queerness as a person and the queerness of his art. All this to say, this is all background for when we talk about this harrowing tale of queer monstrosity. Now, I feel like everyone knows the story of Bride of Frankenstein because it's really sort of soaked in to the popular culture at this point. They know a version of it anyway. Because I think the version, the thing most people know about is really just the, the last 15 minutes of the movie, more or less. Yeah, we belong dead. The pet cemetery thing. Which is a huge difference between the original Frankenstein and this one that kind of illustrates the effect of the code. The original Frankenstein movie, if you've never seen it, ends with both Frankenstein and the monster, who is this very tragic, misunderstood figure going up in a blaze. And it's kind of a morally ambiguous, sad thing. Whereas this one ends with... Well, this one starts with... <laughs> oh my god. So if we're gonna talk the code. Yeah, no, you know what? Let's just... Let's just go through it, because, <laughs> oh boy. So this movie opens with a framing device. A hysterical, historical framing device that makes no sense, because Not you know a damn I love bit. dates, but. Yes. Oh, Dorothy did some math. <laughs> so we open actually in the parlor of Mary Shelley, Lord Shelley, and Byron. Byron. That fucker. Polidori's not hanging around. They have diminished the cast significantly. It's apparently just the three of them. Well, and also she's already had time to talk to a publisher about shit, but they're clearly trying to make it seem as though this is still during the 1816 visit to Villa Deodati in Switzerland. So the Villa Deodati retreat, a bunch of Rich creative assholes went and got high for a for a long time during the coldest summer on record, eighteen sixteen. And from this, we got both the modern gothic in the form of Frankenstein and the beginnings of the modern vampire, because Polidori was wrote, so salty about what an asshole Byron was that he wrote a catty tell-all book with a that was thinly veiled with yes. a supernatural device. <laughs> Yeah, this framing device also cuts out Mary Shelley's stepsister, Claire. They were, they, they, they were all fucking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a lot. It was a very important moment in Western art. <laughs> Extremely. But now it is a lovely drawing room conversation between the delicate Mary Shelley, who is doing her needlepoint and just so effeminate and graceful, you would hardly believe that she had told such a terrifying tale. She pricks her finger and is appalled at the sight of blood. 
But then she explains that, you know, as horrified as people were by her story, the thing that some members of the publishing community didn't understand was that uh, it was meant to be a moral tale reproving man from trespassing in the territory of God. This allows the movie to use a lot of stock footage from its first film, thus padding out the running time by at least two to three minutes. Yeah, well, and it also sets up this framing device of, I'm explaining to you that this is a moral story, Hayes Code folks. Mm-hmm. Please do not enforce too harshly on me. Please. I promise. This didn't work. This is... <laughs> the, the film had a lot of censorship cuts. Including cuts in that scene for, for her just... Her heaving bosom. <laughs> yes, displaying too much cleavage. Which, you know, she's certainly doing the most with that role, which must have been <laughs> so exhausting. Although, it was nice of them to give her more lines. Then when she is later double cast as the monster and the monster's bride and has no lines, but a fabulous costume. Mm-hmm. So after informing us that she has more tale to tell about this very important lesson she is imparting, we go back to the moment of to when they burned down the mill at the end of the last movie, and as it turns out, nobody actually died. <laughs> Surprise! It is peak sequel, and I applaud it. <laughs> you didn't see the bodies, did you? No. They're fine. I mean, we are talking full-on Stuart Gordon took notes from this. So many notes. Literally. So the monster survived because there was water beneath the the mill where he was safe from the fire and Frankenstein is carried out of the blaze, presumed dead, but it turns out he was fine, actually, and just needed to recover from that smoke inhalation. He he just needed his fiancée to hug him. Heterosexuality. And also there is this villager lady who is doing the most. And bless this actress. (laughs) I love her so much. (laughs) Una O'Connor. Yes. She is the most bloodthirsty asshole, but the actress is clearly having a great time. She's just She's there. just there begging to see corpses at every possible opportunity. She's kind of our chambermaid nurse character, if we're looking at it in classical theater terms. Yeah. And it's very good. It's extremely funny. Uh-huh. I want to see the body! And it's like, damn, bitch. Also, she's right. This woman is genre savvy. Most of the film is broken up into parallel narratives. One of them is Frankenstein is recovering and decides to get married. Henry Frankenstein. Henry Frankenstein. I don't know why, but a lot of early, earlier American films just played super fast and loose with character names when adapting from books i assume just to make them sound more american but they did that with the, the 30s monte cristo too yeah but it's so weird it's so weird i don't understand it it's not as funny as the the um the hulk television series where they changed his name from uh, bruce to david because bruce sounds too gay of course for real no i believe you fully I have seen 20th century media properties and read interviews. <laughs> Not Victor. Henry Frankenstein has realized 
that he should leave science behind and embrace God and heterosexuality by marrying his lady wife and settling down into his baronhood. Yes, but by marrying his cousin and adopted sister. Listen, if the movie doesn't acknowledge those things, then it can pretend it's not doing them. The book is some things. Yeah, there's some shit in the book. (laughs) Yeah, she's his adopted sister and also his cousin. But gosh, they were childhood friends. They sure were. But you know, their mom just wanted them to get married so much before she died. Yoko Taro did that shit in Drakengard because he was so pissed off about Oreimo. (laughs) Really? Specifically? No, that's just what was on when the game was coming out. But yes, because he hated Siskon shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yoko Taro's good. But alas, his... Henry Frankenstein and his sister wife. Wait. Not that kind of sister wife. Unfortunately. I don't think that would improve things. No. Well, there there are no wins when you're combining words that way. No. Their happiness is intruded upon by a gay. A vile gay. Who just kind of pops up. I'm not clear on how he found out what was going on. But he's here. Well, you see, he was Henry's mentor at school. Yes, but how did he know that this shit was happening? The phylactery, obviously. (laughs) That all scientists are required to provide. He comes to beg Henry for his assistance because he's figured out how to make perfect people. Brains. But all his people are grown, like, in pods. So they come out super tiny, which leads to... A frankly delightful little sequence where he takes out all of these little bell jars that have his various people projects in them. Apparently that section was uh, censored in Japan. Really? Yeah, because uh, when he chases around the the little Henry VIII with tweezers and picks him up, it's making a fool of a king. Huh. Film censorship across countries is wild. So this character, Dr. Pretorius... If you will refer to our last anniversary episode, this name may sound familiar to you. Yes, this name was reused for the creepy mentor character in um, Stuart Gordon's adaptation of From Beyond. He was also very creepy and queer-coded. Don't worry. This original Pretorius is fabulously gay and evil. He's wonderful. He's played by um, Ernest Thesiger, who is... Read his Wikipedia page, y'all. It's amazing. Choice bits. In addition to, you know, being a professional actor and uh, fighting in World War I, he also was uh, one of the foremost experts on needlepoint. And put together uh, needlepoint kits for soldiers to occupy themselves with when uh, hospitalized and things like that. And then he came home and made a living being bitchy. Being a bitchy gay and stuff. <laughs> a professional bitchy gay. We love to see it. The subtext is extremely thinly veiled here because Pretorius essentially blackmails Henry into helping him make a new human. This poor tormented man. Oh, gosh. Seduced back into this sin and vice. Which you mentioned that there is a novelization that spells this out a little more. Not unlike Reanimator. Yes, the novelization of this added in some specific language around, I can't find the quote right now, but around how 
every man's drive is to reproduce, and, uh, well, you can do it normally. My only recourse is through these more scientific means. He talks like that. It's very good. Like, Scar from The Lion King. Just that proud heritage of what, um, what, uh, film scholar Vito Russo would have, well, did refer to as the sissy archetype is just so present here and it's just such an example of it of these behaviors that <laughs> were used to convey all of this in addition to the plot-wise developments those tight ringlet curls too were really a visual signifier for quite a few films of that era well because it's being fussy about your appearance ah. it's, it's a feat to care what you look like obviously actually the actor playing henry uh colin clive was also gay or bi which and makes this a an extremely gay production pretty much top down at first henry is sort of intrigued but reluctant to go forward with it you know that queer seduction metaphor yeah but so then we sort of cut away to the monster having just an awful time people are chasing after him he's being he's wounded Pulls some chick out of a pool of shallow water and she is frankly deeply ungrateful. Pushes <laughs> another guy into drown. You know, swings and roundabouts. The sheep are unharmed <laughs> and impassive. And eventually he makes it to this cabin in the woods where he meets with a... There are some Roma stereotypes. Ah, uh, yes, that is. I believe that that little scene that remains in it from what I understand, originally was longer and was one of the scenes that were edited. Because from what I understand, uh, that scene was probably the one that ended with somebody murdering a family member and then blaming the monster oh. and increasing the hysteria. So those Romani stereotypes got even worse. Got even worse, but also were this sort of confounding moral element where... You mean the normal people are doing bad things? That's not cool. Right. Instead, that's a very brief scene where he tries to steal some food and then is chased away, ends up cold and hungry at the cabin of a blind man living alone, playing a violin, who, as part of a trope that we will see again and again in the coming decades, cannot see the monster's monstrousness. And thus welcomes him in like a friend and gives him language and food and safety. And my God, is it gay. So gay. This but don't worry, Jesus is there too. This friendly, familial love for Jesus. They lie down in the same bed. It's fine. Platonically. It's extremely homoerotic. And this lasts for all of this five minutes. This teaches him to smoke. And then, of course, immediately some villagers come in and ruin it. And in the ensuing terrified struggle, the house gets lit on fire. The monster still does not like fire. Nope. Uh, on account of the fire. You know, on account of the traumatic fire. So after escaping from that is when he runs across Pretorius, who realizes, I can use this guy as muscle. And also gets him drunk. Plies him with alcohol. The vice. The evil oh. vice. Carlos' performance here is obviously an embedded part of modern pop culture that has been repeated years and years and you know you've got 
on the one hand, the people who are really annoyed the monster lost the faculty of speech in the original whale film, and, like, that's fair. But on the other hand, I think the popular image of Karloff's performance loses a lot of the vulnerability that he brings to the role. Because he was quite a good actor. He was literally starving before he, he took on this role uh, the first time around. He was so very thin and it was a painful costume for him. Those big boots were quite difficult to move around in and hard on his body. But he really does have this vulnerability and depth to this role that has even now very little dialogue in this film. Yeah. It's a good performance. Yeah, and and there's I think that's the reason why it does hang on in popular consciousness. And it's a bit of a shame to me really that it that because these films are so sort of soaked into American pop culture, I think a lot of people don't bother to watch them these days because they already know them beat by beat but they're worth watching for the performances and mm-hmm. and to actually see what was going on yeah because of the code restrictions the plots are often quite thin or piecemeal in code films but the acting is it, it almost always ends up shining through that's always the best part and so now with large meat shield in hand Pretorius goes <laughs> back to Henry's house and is like, so I heard you weren't interested in helping. Anyway, I've kidnapped your wife. We have decided now that not only will we make any old second person, it must be a woman. Because the monster has requested a friend. It's very interesting from a coding standpoint that the monster just asks for a friend, gender neutral and that's one of the things that has played into a lot of people's analysis is that the language the monster uses around the hermit and the bride is identical, which could be read as asexual, could also be read as bisexual. Whatever way you go with it, queer. But that's because he's, you know. So, so innocent and childlike, he and does not know. And wrong. And so we have this kind of driving to the climax where we recreate the big storm scene from the first movie because there's nothing a sequel that undeads its cast loves to do more than recreate the high point everybody talked about the first time around james whale making trope james whale did that (laughs) and the bride is born and wouldn't you know it she cannot stand to look at the monster or herself I i think there's something there about also female vanity that, that her inbuilt female vanity prevents her from being able to accept her monstrous state. That and also it really, in the guise of this film as a queer film by a cis gay man, really feels like women will let you down. They're shallow and vain and only your bros mm-hmm. can be trusted to really understand you as a person. Yeah. It, it's kind of misogynistic, but also the performance good. Yeah. Then, because there is some load-bearing villainy happening, the cap- the castle collapses, and the only people to escape are the normal living heterosexuals. Because, you see, the monster is, you know, wounded by this, by this rejection, and decides to use the load-bearing villainy to blow them up, specifically <laughs> himself, the, the bride, and Pretorius, but he gives his blessing to the creator who abandoned him. 
you you and your heterosexual lady wife must go and live because you are the correct. Also, like, if I was the bride, I'd be pretty pissed anyway because she, the body they acquired was literally a murder victim. Mm-hmm. Like, some dude literally went and murdered a lady. Yeah. And then they grew this brain and just popped it on in there. That's normal. That's normal fine. fine. I'd be pissed. But sadly... She really does only have about five minutes of screen time for such an iconic look. Yeah. Well, barring, you know, the many sequels that would come. And Elsa Lanchester is looking good, though. Really, really good. Pretty lady. I feel like Lady Dimitrescu uh, sort of borrowed the drapey gown look. Yeah, it's a good look. I know I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, and I apologize. And thus our morality play, which it definitely is now, comes to a close. As Mary Shelley told you. It would. Mm-hmm. Naughty, naughty. Transgressing in God's realm. So obviously this is an extremely gay film made gaily, flying in the face of the code. By by a bunch uh, of gay performers and uh-huh. a gay director. Yes, obviously. Uh, open and shut. Well. And this is where sort of early to mid 20th century politics we have to contextualize historically this film is an example of camp to start with intensely camp like the sensibility of camp is there which is partly because of the acting style of the time partly because of these very lavish aesthetics that were part of creature features at the time because those universal bucks you get people in to come see the effects budgets Mm -hmm. and those things come together along with the camp elements that predate film in the gay community to make this extremely powerful work of visual camp. Yeah, but I, I think that another of the camp things that we see, especially with those lavish budgets you're talking about, was, you know, the big effects sequence with the miniature homunculus people is literally burlesquing heterosexual relationships. It's literally about how he's made these tiny little people and the king is this ravenous sexual monster that has to be forcibly separated from the little queen or else he'll ravish her. And also there's this scolding bishop in miniature. So that's his idea of a microcosm of heterosexuality. But, you know, that just happens to be what what these miniature characters grew up into. It's funny jokes. Who can say why they're funny jokes? These jokes are funny. It is astounding to me that this film had multiple cuts for cross imagery, not unlike an anime being edited by four kids. And yet they missed this entire satire scene. Because the code was, among many other things, extremely stupid on the front of reading comprehension. No, the code was all about like these specific things depicted visually which is why artists were able to work around it with implication and with training audiences to read deeper and basically the entirety of how we actually process film (laughs) as more than just images but well the thing about that this is though that will died in 1957 so he lived another 22 years after this and he was an out gay man in Hollywood. He lived with his uh, his partner, David Lewis, 
for a long, long time. He kept working off and on sometimes throughout World War II and everything. And then um, he, he died by suicide. And it's very sad. He drowned himself in his swimming pool. A lot of the people who knew him, once his work started gaining recognition as queer works in the latter part of the 20th century, the people who survived him tended to push back on that pretty hard. The idea that they were queer works. There was there is a lot of quoting from people who were friends of him that he just to the effect that it's just that he was a gay man and made these stories that he wanted to tell, and so. But that doesn't mean that that th they are gay works. You may uh, recall this line of logic from our episode on Frisk a few months back, which is that very that thing you see with. I think it can happen with any queer artist, but I think you see it a lot with cis white gay men because they are, in effect, the closest members of our community to bursting through the top of the privilege bubble. But we're just normals and, and we would like you to be a, accept us at the top echelon. I don't even necessarily think that that Whale took this position. There's this person who was a friend of his, Curtis Harrington, who was another filmmaker at the time and talked a lot about how not gay Wells' work was. So I'm just going to read off a couple of quotes. He, he claimed that despite the fact that Wells was known as the queen of Hollywood, nobody really made a big deal about that though. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure even, even noted Ryan Murphy show Glee <laughs> has explained why that's fucked up. When even Ryan Murphy knows you fucked up. But Harrington has dismissed re queer readings specifically of Bride because that's usually people's central look at Whale's career. It's sort of considered his masterpiece and also the gayest thing he made. Though not the only one. Someday we'll do Old Dark House. Someday. Oh, Frankenstein. <laughs> Old Dark House gay. also has Fezziger in it, so. Yes. He's, he's delight. He is. He's delightful. But... Harrington says, my opinion is that's just pure bullshit. That's a critical interpretation that has nothing to do with the original inspiration. I think you can cl the closest you can come to a homosexual metaphor in his films is to identify that certain sort of camp humor. Meanwhile, Wells' longtime companion, yes, in that sense, David Lewis, was always like, no, that had nothing to do with, with his filmmaking. My partner's orientation had nothing to do with his filmmaking. Jimmy was first and foremost an artist, and his films represent the work of an artist. Not a gay artist, but an artist. That's kind of the crux here. It's really hard, because on the one hand, you don't want to devalue what might be truth of how Whale saw himself, or how he saw himself at times through his career. On the other hand, how much do we as modern readers and critics look at that and say, isn't there a an advantage to trying to push this narrative of it as a universal so that it doesn't get pigeonholed and forgotten as, ah, the gay art. But, see, I think it's telling that we're hearing this from other people, not Whale himself. You know, we're hearing this from people after the fact who knew him, who are trying to safeguard his legacy by positioning him as not a gay artist, but an artist who happens to be gay. And... 
it's a much older understanding of the value or lack thereof of gay art than I think maybe a lot of our listeners are used to because it presumes that having an identity or an agenda that is impacting your art unless that identity is just straight cis white guy from the upper classes makes inherently inferior art that the best art is value neutral so even if you do have an identity even if you are you know black or or queer or a woman or any intersection thereof the best thing you can do is to subsume that under your ability to make replicas of art as would be made by a upper class straight cis white man i look no further than the work of one roland emmerich who i did not know was gay until he made that extremely embarrassing stonewall movie wow Uh uh-huh so i guess he did it he succeeded and we've definitely seen that sort of sea change over time into the idea that there can be prestige to making queer-oriented art. But oddly enough, I think one of the things that we're going to be talking about over the course of this month is how that usually only works for people who aren't queer. <laughs> so now it's it's this other thing where if you use your straight cis white identity to make art depicting queerness, it will get a lot further than own voices stuff. Yeah. And so it's a thorny subject. I think that is definitely going to be the crux of this particular month. There's certainly the ongoing discussion now, I think, is that we are finding that twinned almost fetishization of certain own voices work, depending on their level of marketability that pre-exists, that we can then cash in on this extra diversity element that companies think will make money, but also... Or, or the cynically faked own voices work, like Josh Lanyon. But also, you know, the quote-unquote underclass of indie own voices artists who are three times as vulnerable. So I think that's where we're at now. And it'll be very interesting looking at these factors going through through history. Because we're going to be going, our next stop will be in the 70s. And then we'll kind of be stopping off in the uh, the, the back half of the 20th, uh, 20th century, I think, to end off the month this time. Yeah. And we're going to sort of look at the ways that all of these things affect not only film reception, but also just questions of who you're making a film for, like who the audience you're presuming to create a film for is. Because this was created for wide release, because who else would it be made for? No other things. This is the system. Mm -hmm. This is the studio system in the U.S. This is how Universal works. That is how you get a film seen outside of your small group of friends yeah. who are also wealthy because that's the only way you can afford film stock. Yeah. Whereas we're going to look at sort of how technology impacts this, how access to that technology impacts who can make films, but also what that means for the quality of those films. The idea of independent filmmaking, recreational filmmaking, camp uh, as a coherent sensibility. I love Pride Month. It's so fun, isn't it? It's really fun. But yeah, we generally do want these discussions to be celebratory, even when we're talking about these sort of thorny tangles. So we hope that you'll have a good time with this one. 
Also, as a note, I still haven't gotten around to seeing it, but there is a biopic about James Whale. Yes, there is. Sir Ian. Called Of Gods and Monsters, which is a quote from this film. Yeah. And um, it has as our viewpoint character, Brendan Fraser as the hunky young gardener. Why haven't I seen this film? I don't know. <laughs> Probably because it's sad. Because uh, Whale's life ended sadly. It did. Oh, look, but mental health care was not really a thing in America at that time, but especially in Hollywood. If you do any reading at all, audience, about sort of the lives and histories of people who were famous in early Hollywood, they are almost universally extremely sad. <laughs> Pretty much the happy ones are by far the exception. So at least things will nominally improve on that front. You know, our next yeah. one will improve on that greatly. It's a happy Hugely. story. It is. So before we get to that, thank you so much for joining us. We are really appreciative of one and all of you. You can find more of our stuff by looking on SoundCloud or your podcatcher of choice for Trash and Treasures. We'd love it if you left us a five-star rating or review because it helps people to find us and know that, you know, we still exist. You can always email us. We are at trashtreasurespod at gmail.com. We love to get mail. Actually, we have a little bit of mail that I would like to read today uh, from Sam F., who said some very sweet things about the podcast. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Apparently, they used to live near Tacoma Park, which we mentioned the uh, the Beltway sniper shootings in our most recent Go Crows episode. So. I was born in Tacoma Park. Wow. Yeah. I suppose it's not a big enough event for people to discuss often, but I have strong memories of not being allowed outside at school. We would just go back to the classrooms for recess instead of going out to the schoolyard. Heavy stuff, but I really appreciated it. Uh, us discussing it, I think. And then they also asked whether we had any insights about the reincarnated lover trope. I see it coming with things like Vampire Diaries and the 1992 version of Dracula, but I don't know where it comes from. So this seemed like an appropriate email to read this week. Because we're talking about Universal Films. Yeah, so I have a theory on this that a lot of people don't agree with me on, especially people who are in vampire studies. But I have always maintained that the reason the reincarnated lover trope got so popular and, and such a big thing in Dracula-related stuff and then other vampire stuff after that is because it got grafted on from Universal's The Mummy. That is the plot of that movie. That is literally the plot of The Mummy. Old dead guy sees woman. Decides that that's his ex. Rest of the movie spends pursuing her. A lot of people point to, you know, the Hammer films of the late 20th century, but I really think that all of the movies that are doing that are consciously or unconsciously just chomping Karloff's turn as The Mummy and the, the motivation from there. And just grafting it onto Dracula to the point where we identify it more with Dracula and with vampires in general now. I do think the 92 version repopularized it and made sure. it inescapable, but I think your theory has merit is the thing. Yeah, like I really think that that's what brought that idea forward of one immortal wandering the earth and re-encountering or believing they've re-encountered the re-embodiment of someone they lost a long time ago. Like, nobody agrees with me, but that's my onion. So I hope that answers your question. That's our best guess. <laughs> you can also find us on social media. We are 
on Twitter at TrashPod, and we are on Tumblr at TrashAndTreasuresPod.tumblr.com because we are riding that sinking rat ship all the way down into the depths of the ocean. It's quite pleasant now. Uh, we also have a Patreon, Patreon.com slash TrashAndTreasures, which I am desperately working on fixing the backlog of. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I expect just an explosion this summer, frankly. It's because I will have more time. <laughs> Dorothy's about to be on summer break and only have to do uh, work for as a tutor. So we will have lots of time to record things. Only that, you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I'm sure they know. So next time, as I mentioned, we will be rocketing forward in time from the 30s all the way up to the 70s with a John Waters film. We've been threatening to talk about John Waters for years and it's finally here. Patron saint. The patron saint of trash. My idol. Mm Mm-hmm. He's not a perfect man, God who is, but someday, if I could be as comfortable with my bullshit as him. He is so self-awarely imperfect. And we are also going to talk about the icon, the legend, Divine. Divine. Oh, marvelous. Specifically, we will be talking about Female Trouble, which is a wonderful film. Unfortunately, it might be somewhat difficult for you to watch this one along with us. Bride, you can find most on, either on Criterion channel or you know any number of cheap dvd sets female trouble is specifically a criterion blu-ray release and i'm not sure if it's on their streaming service if it's not it's definitely not anywhere else alas yeah but it is a wonderful film you know pink flamingos is his best known but i think this one's his best of his early stuff of his early stuff yeah so yeah look forward to us gushing relentlessly about the weird weird world of john waters gross phrasing but yeah it's fitting isn't it it is all right (laughs) until next time take care of yourselves see y'all